welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We're in a series called Present Future Church, and we are looking at what the church is called to be, and um, this series was um, inspired by a question I heard the Lord ask me during my study break, which was, uh, if, um, what kind of church do you want to hand over to the next generation? And I had this idea that came with it, which was essentially, what kind of church do you want your children to grow up in so that they don't have to heal from the wounds of the church, like so many of us have had to do? And no church is perfect, but it was this task of recognizing the things we're doing now are not just for us, but it's for a legacy. And I want to build a church that uh, my family wants to be a part of, um, that my children can grow up and, and stand on the shoulders um, of, of this generation and take it to wherever we can't take it. And so I started thinking about that. And so um, three weeks ago, we started the conversation with Stay Hungry that the church that we need to be is a, a church that's hungry for God's presence, that there are a lot of things we can focus on, programs, um, celebrity pastors, which obviously I am, and uh, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, definitely not, um, uh, and, uh, or, or, or ways and strategies and all sorts of things, but we want to train ourselves to be people who are um, adamantly pursuing, passionately pursuing the presence of God together. And then I had some friends share the last couple of weeks. They were okay. Um, Johnny was great. Johnny's from the UK and my friend Tyler in Brooklyn. Amazing men of God who lead churches around the world and carrying something on them. And today I'm going to continue our conversation. But knowing what this conversation is, first I want to say this. You're going to be, you're, throughout this sermon, you're going to be like, where is he going with this? And so I want you to just know it will all make sense near the end, okay? So just trust me and stay with me. <laughs> And second, the enemy does not want you to hear this talk. He's going to do two things. He's going to try to get you to think, okay, this is legalistic, right? Especially for people that are new to the church or have come from like more conservative background where, where what we've learned is um, actually there's freedom in Jesus, and that's true. Um, but what's happened because of our generation and because of maybe past experiences and because of the secular uh, uh, narrative that we live in um, is essentially that f uh, uh, we should follow our hearts, uh, whatever that means, and we should, um, uh, freedom means there's no restricted, there's, there's unrestricted access, right? And so for uh, someone who grew up in the church, in a conservative church, you know, when I discovered what Jesus meant by the kingdom, it was amazing because I pushed away all sorts of things that were legalistic and rules and regulations that Jesus never placed on the church. And I found freedom in Jesus, which is true. But also what I realize is that uh, Paul talks about this. If you um, indulge in the flesh, you're not using your freedom the way God intended it to be. Does that make sense? And so on one side, we have this like love for unrestricted access. You can find that on your phone under settings. You go to your settings and there's a thing that you can click now and it says unrestricted access that you have infinity, infinity on your phone. But we love that in life. Do you know what I'm talking about? We love that in life. We don't like when people put boundaries up. We don't like when we, someone has a boundary. We don't like when we're told that we can't do something. Like I, I, I actually, I, I have a hard time with that personally, but there's this area in life that's, that we love freedom and we think freedom is unrestricted access, but that's not true. Freedom detached from meaning um, leads to indulging in the flesh. And so Paul was saying Galatians 5, to use your freedom um, for freedom's sake, you will use it re with restraint. But the other way the enemy tries to, to ruin this talk is he wants to make it about legalism. He wants to make it about a religion, a rule, a thing you have to follow um, uh, without the presence of God, without intimacy with God. And you're gonna hear it and you're gonna be like, this is definitely not me and you're gonna pull away. So can we pray against the enemy? Yes. So Holy Spirit, would you just come and speak to us? And we pray against the lies that we have already believed. We, 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 we bind the work of the enemy right now to not sow alongside this message of truth, lies. And I ask that you would uproot the lies that are in our life and bring freedom today, that this would be a joyful invitation into more of your presence, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So go to the book of Numbers. Now we're talking about the present future church. Where are we going as a church? What does the future church look like? So we should start with one of the first five books of the Bible. It's found uh, in the first five books. It's Numbers, and Numbers is part of the Old Testament. And this section is called the Torah. Would you say Torah? Torah. Let me get everyone's attention. Torah. I know you're scrolling. Torah. (laughs) Wow, you guys. Let me just start it all over. You ready? Torah. That's way better. If I was a school teacher, I'd be really disappointed right now. (laughs) Summer comes and you forget everything that you learned in third grade. Come on, here we go, Torah. So um, by the time you were 10 in the first century, you would have had the the first five books of the Bible memorized. And there's a section in Numbers um, that gives instruction to the people of God. And remember the Torah was the way, the truth, and the life for Israel. It was like instruction manual on how to represent God on earth. And there was a section for people who wanted God to show up. And they were struggling. And this was a, a vow you could take to partner with God in the redemptive work in your own life and the community around you. So in the Old Testament, there's this vow, this covenant you can make to God that would uh, enable you to partner with God in his redemptive work in your own life and the community around you. It's called the Nazarite vow. So if you have a Bible, go to number six, verse one. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, dot, dot, dot. So the first two verses of chapter, uh, of chapter six show us that there is this theme in this section and it is the Nazarite vow. And it says in um, the original lang- language in Hebrew, if someone wants to make this special vow, um, he will to become a Nazarite, and Nazarite means dedicated one or consecrated one, set apart, um, they're gonna do these things. And we'll talk about those things in a second. But the word special is actually very special here in the Hebrew. And I wanna talk about this because I want you to understand what's going on in the language. Words matter in the Bible, the, especially the way they intended them to be used. And in Hebrew, there's less words than, than other um, languages out there. And so in Hebrew, there's this word, and this is what it looks like in Hebrew, and it's pronounced plea, and it's an awkward Part of an awkward Hebrew phrase in this particular Numbers chapter one verse, or chapter six, verse two. And it means special. That's how my NIV translation translated it. But also, if you go to Judges, I wanna show you another translation. Go to Judges chapter 13, verse 19. For all of you Bible lovers, we'll look at a couple of verses just to understand this word and what it means. It's translated differently, and it says in verse um, 18, No, am I reading 18? Uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 19, thank you. Uh, Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock um, to the Lord, and the Lord did an amazing thing. So that word is translated there to amazing. Same in Joshua chapter three, where Joshua tells the Israelites, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. But it also has a different translation in Psalm, chapter 77, the same word, plea, in Hebrew. In chapter 77, verse 11, it says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your plea, your miracles of long ago. So the word in the Old Testament for special also means if someone wants to take on an amazing vow, a miraculous vow, um, a wonderful vow, Uh, Some scholars say if they want to take on a supernatural vow, they dedicate themselves as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a special way of participating with God in redemptive work for him to move in unusual, mysterious, amazing, special, significant, supernatural, miraculous ways in your life and in your community. So here's what it says. Uh, in chapter six. Let's just go and just look at it and talk about the ancient Near Eastern context when this was applied. So in Numbers chapter six, it says, if you wanna take a Nazarite vow, here's what you gotta do. Uh, They must abstain from wine and other fermented drinks, like kombucha, and must not drink vinegar (laughs) from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins, as long as they remain under the Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds of, or skins. So 
in, in that context, what you have is um, wine, fermented drinks, grapes. This is like delicacies and part of uh, just enjoyment in life. Wine, uh, obviously it has alcohol. There's all sorts of things with that, but it was part of everyday life. You would drink wine in the evenings. You would drink wine at weddings. You were drinking wine um, during your Sabbath meal every week. You were commanded to drink four cups of wine on the Passover Someone was like cheering in the first service. I was like, hey, no, no, no. (laughs) Four cups of wine commanded by the law during the Passover. And so you have this decision. If you want to partner with God in this vow, if you want to do something that's wonderful and amazing, you have to choose to enter in into into the necessary requirements that the Lord provides, which means that your lifestyle has to change. This was just ordinary social life. It had social implications. I talked to people who give up alcohol um, for, for various reasons of fasting, and they immediately begin to list out, well, I got this wedding going on. I have this birthday party. I got this you know, theology on tap that I lead at the brewery. That was me back in the day, just so you know, when our church started. Back at EJ Malloy's, I had my own mug with my name on it. Yes, but we'll talk about that later. Point being, we always have social implications for the Nazarite vow. Lifestyle impl- implications to show, uh, to, to bring a dedication to the Lord if you are invited into this vow. Verse five, dur- during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. So there's this command that the Nazarites had this like, wild hair flowing, this beautiful lock of hair flowing from their head. But the point of that is uh, this picture of a physical representation to your community that you were a Nazarite. There was a physical implication for your decision to be dedicated to the Lord. And part of that has to do with the sacrifice that you'll see in just a second that at the end of your vow, you'll shave your head and offer your hair uh, as a burnt offering to the Lord that this has had serious implications. It had implications in your daily life and the things that you drank and ate. Delicacies like grapes and stuff, that had to do with like sugar today. It would be like, hey, you can't have yogurt land on your Nazarite vow. Yeah, exactly. You're like, what? No yogurt land? Yeah, that's what it's, it's like sweets. And it's saying you're, you're, um, if your desire is for God to move, the greater desire, you deny the smaller desires for the greater. Does that make sense? As you deny the small, as you give up or discipline the micro, there are macro implications for that decision in your life, right? And the story keeps going, or the, the, the kind of the vow keeps going, so you, you have to grow your hair out, and all the hipsters with facial hair, you're so happy. I'm just jealous because I can't grow it except in patches. And... Um, <laughs> It's okay, I'll, I'll get there one day, um, or not. Throughout the period, let's just keep going. My, my embarrassment is running through. I was gonna say, you know, once I hit puberty, then I'll get <laughs> some facial hair. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body, check. Um, even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean or on the account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head throughout the period of their dedication. They are consecrated to the Lord. And then it talks about what happens when you do see or come near a dead body, which seems to be so common in the ancient Near Eastern context. So that there's this whole process that you go through to start over on your Nazarite vow. And the time that you already gave to the vow is no longer um, sufficient. So if you said, I'm gonna do it for 30 days, you gotta start over. Some would go for seven years. There's a story in the Mishnah of a queen, Helen, Helena, Helena, going for seven years, getting defiled and having to start over because she came in touch with a dead body. And we think, okay, that should be easier in our context, but imagine in first century or before when you live with your relatives and if if they catch the cold, they might die. And there's no hospital at that point. And so like in our society, someone gets sick or they grow in age, we push them out of our life. We don't wanna see that, which is terrible. 
Christians were the ones that created hospitals and hospices. We are the ones that said, we're gonna care for the dying with dignity. We're gonna create orphan, orphanages and we're gonna care for the sick, even if it's the black plague, because that's what Jesus commands us to do. But in our context, we wanna push it away because we don't wanna see it. Let's just keep going, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Just like it later. I served at the VA like, whatever it is. You know what I'm talking about? I don't mean to call you out on that thing. That's a minor thing I'm calling out. Let's get to the real stuff in just a second. But the point is, in that context, death was a reality. You could not get away from death. Cousin gets sick, he's in your neighborhood. You're gonna come around a dead body or a corpse at some point. So it had communal implication. If you took on the Nazarite vow and someone got sick, you would leave your home to remain purified or pure or clean to the Lord. So it had lifestyle commitment, had social implications, it had relational implications, it had living uh, implications, it had uh, physical implications. We're talking about people who are going all out for God to do something. And it goes on and it says, okay, you can do that, but to finish the vow, check this out. Remember, I told you it's gonna go somewhere. Just stay with me. Verse 13, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the period of their dedication is over, they are to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting or eventually the temple. They are to present their offering to the Lord. Now list, I wanna just put the list up there now and I'll read it, but check out the list of offerings you had to bring in order to finish your vow to the Lord. I'll read it out, look at the list. It says, um, they are to present their offerings to the Lord. A year old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offering, their drink offering, and baskets of bread with finest flour without yeast, thick loaves of olive oil mixed in and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. Then the priest is to present them before the Lord to make a sin offering, and then the burnt offering, he's to present the basket of unleavened bread, and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord to gather with its grain offering and drink offering. Then at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that symbolizes their dedication. They are to take the hair and to put it in the fire and then uh, that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. And then they're relieved from their vow and they can drink wine. So there is a list of seven sacrifices that you would bring to finish your devotion, your dedication, your special vow to the Lord. And most scholars think nobody could afford this. This is way too expensive. No one could afford this. Unless what they think is they had communal support. The community was like, yeah, this is what we need. We need to get in on this dedication. And they provided the resources for this to take place for a person to bring their offerings and then stand in front of the tent meeting. I just want you to imagine for a second, standing before uh, uh, going into the temple as a young person and watching somebody shave off their head. I guess it wouldn't be like that. It would be like cut their hair. And they take their hair and they, they throw it on the fire and imagine smelling that burnt hair smell, right? You just watch three different, like two lambs and a ram and this, the blood and the sacrifice and, and, and you know how much those things cost and you know what it costs to bring all of that and then this person's cutting their hair and they throw it and you smell burnt hair and what do you think? Thousands of years ago, what do you think when you smell burnt hair? Passion, devotion. He just gave everything he had to God. Miraculous. That's, that's what we're given. This picture of this vow someone could participate in to see if God would move in their life. A, a sense of devotion and passion um, that someone could, could take this personal journey to, with God to see him move. And I was, you know, I was thinking, well, thank God that's not what we have to do anymore. And we don't <laughs> because of Jesus. It's, I mean, that would be intense. Imagine if you're like, okay, guys, you know, I really want God to move. And we're like, all right, save up all your money. Grow that hair out. Don't let anything touch the armpits or the legs, ladies. We're gonna grow it out and then we're gonna shave it off when you have enough. You know what I'm talking about? Forget the sugar and the sweets. Obviously, kombucha's off the table and the alcohol. We're gonna get, we're gonna get, and don't, don't touch anything that brings spiritual death to you. 
oh, we didn't get away that easy, did we? Oh, dead body's one thing, but what about the comparison game that brings spiritual death when you scroll on Instagram? What about the judgment game that, that, you, that happens when you're scrolling on Facebook or whatever it is that you do? What about the idolatry of Prime in your life, Amazon Prime? Not Prime, the Transformer. <laughs> None of you were thinking that, that was just me? Am I a nerd? Yeah, that's clearly, I'm in the wrong crowd. Maybe, or, or Disney Plus is coming out, and maybe the, the idolatry for you is how you use uh, media and television and great television to escape and cope with the pain of reality. What brings spiritual death, brothers and sisters? And it, this is found in the New Testament. I found some stuff I wanted to share with you. That, so this is Darren's personal road trip through Acts. So Acts chapter 21, I was reading and I was thinking, man, uh, is there any account of this vow happening in, in the Bible? And there are two places that I found other than John the Baptist and some of the other things. But in, after the resurrected Christ, there, Paul has a couple of instances where this happens. The Nazarite vow is mentioned. So in Acts 20, uh, whoo, I told you puberty, Acts 21. <laughs> Acts 21. We all hit it at late, different times in life. Acts 21, verse 22. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Oh, interesting. What kind of vow are you talking about there? Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. So traveling with Paul are these guys who are Christian who took on the Nazarite vow. They can't afford the, the payment of the sacrifices and the offerings. They're literally sitting around with Paul waiting to get their head shaved if they could afford it. And Paul has a way to argue he's following the law in this context in Jerusalem, um, but still as a Christian, he has four guys doing this vow. That's one instant in the New Testament where we see um, this vow taken. I'll show you another one in a second, but the question I have is why would somebody take on the Nazarite vow? It's a lot of sacrifice. Would you agree? Like, why would somebody do all of this? Like, we don't have an answer for the why in the Bible, so we have to assume. And what some scholars say is, well, what you have in the Old Testament is written into it is this place for people who, individuals, who have tried everything they possibly could for change. Maybe it was a habit that owned them. We would use words like addiction. Or maybe there was, there was like this grieving situation that somebody was experiencing in their life, in their community, and they couldn't help but recognize the pain. And so they decided that this is the only way change is gonna come. This is the only, maybe something was in the way of the life that they really wanted. And they thought, if I could just get rid of all these things and dedicate myself, consecrate, make myself holy before the Lord to pursue him, maybe the complacency I have, the compromise that I've experienced will change as I go all out for my life love for God. So what you have is this way through the Old Testament, which was the way of life for back then, is a way for people to, to go all out, to go all out in what they were doing with God. It, maybe they had tried everything they possibly could, and they just didn't have the breakthrough they wanted, and so they, they took on this miraculous vow, this amazing vow, this, this way of setting themselves apart for a bigger purpose. Maybe they had, to, they recognized that these smaller desires were hindering the big desire in their life, which was God showing up in their life. This is the idea of the Nazarite vow. On an individual level, on an individual level, what you see is there are people throughout scripture and throughout history that choose to give up smaller things for the bigger thing. And it's an invitation into consecration. And then I think, actually, if I could speak prophetically, I just want to stay here for a moment. I think God is inviting individuals to consecrate themselves. I don't know why that was funny, but maybe it made sense. But God is inviting individuals to consecrate themselves, to step into a season of purity and holiness. Not out of, I have to prove myself to God, and I want to make this abundantly clear, so hear me, lean in. 
Nothing about this message is that you do more for God and he'll like you more, love you more, accept you more. There is nothing you can possibly do on this planet to earn God's love or favor. You already have it in Jesus. You are already enough because of him. You are loved as you are and not as you should be. Paul, over and over again in the, book, in the entire New Testament, when he talks to the church, he says to the holy ones, the hagioi, the holy ones, the saints in Ephesus, the saints in Corinth, the saints in uh, in Colossae, the saints in Philippi, the saints in Rome. You can't possibly earn or make yourself more holy. You are holy in Christ, okay? But in the same breath as he says you are holy, he will say in Romans, he will say in Galatians, he will say in Ephesians, you are holy, so be holy. Church, this is who you are, so be it. And I believe there is a call on the church right now, in this moment, present, future church, has to wake up and pursue holiness as the character of God that we need to reflect back into a broken, sinful world. Our job is not to stand condemning the world, judging the world, that's his job. Our job is to reflect God in our lives to the world, not by our words, but through our conduct, through our behavior, through our thoughts. How are we doing, church? So individually, the Lord is waking his church up, calling individuals, and I use this word intentionally, inviting individuals into consecration to make themselves holy. And it looks different for everyone, but there are themes going on that I'm witnessing around the world, happening in Brooklyn, happening in London, happening in Singapore, happening in South Africa. It's happening all over, in Australia, all over the world, individuals, leaders of the church are recognizing God is stirring something in this moment and we have to prepare ourselves. Invitation into consecration. Uh, In 2015, January, which turned out to be a really hard year um, for me. January 2015, I had a prophetic dream and I don't speak, I don't have prophetic dreams. I don't have significant dreams like that often. And I say it's prophetic because it was God speaking to me a word in the moment and he was getting my attention. It was a detailed dream and the themes were dramatic. It had to do with culture, had to do with um, uh, the flesh and the world. It had to do with uh, the age, the spirit age of the demonic strongholds. It had to do with um, uh, the revival that God wants to bring. It had to do with my personal life. And I woke up, shared it with my wife, shared it with a few friends and I said, what do you think God's saying? And my wife, without missing a beat, said, I think you should give up alcohol. Oh, really? I was just excited I'm gonna be a part of revival and preach to crowds and this and that. And she's like, no, I think God is getting in your heart. She's, I'll never forget, I was so shocked. She's like, he wants you to prepare to preach the culture by being an example of, of holiness. So that was January 2015. Don't really do anything with that. That's cool, babe. I like your interpretation. I'll go with the other route. Um, <laughs> and then in, in, uh, on March 28th, 2016, Uh, my renewal began, my personal renewal began on March 28th, 2016. I got a phone call from a friend's wife who said, uh, he's drinking again, can you come? I'm taking the twins, we're going away. I show up to my friend's house and here he is, uh, opens the door, reeks of alcohol, smells like vomit in his home. His two-month-old twins were taken out of the house by his wife. She said, I won't live with an alcoholic like this who drinks. He relapsed and I smell um, and I see an image of where death and destruction and sin and addiction and pain and all that's wrong with the world is right here, where there's divorce on, on route, there's self-destruction, there's self-hatred, there's, there's uh, generational issues and generational addictions. All of it was right here in this moment. And as I walk with him, trying to sober him up, he gets in the shower, he walk, walk to get coffee, and we cl- I, I literally clean out his house of all the alcohol he had hidden as he confesses all this stuff. I'm like, bro, you gotta change. Like, your wife is gone, your kids are gone, the house that you have, you're, you're gonna lose your job, all for this. And anyone that's an addict knows this is so much bigger to a non-addict than, than this. You know what I'm saying? It's massive in their life. So I don't, I'm not saying addiction's easy, but I was like, look at this, and you're doing it for this. And, and I said, well, why, if you wanna go, let's start now. I'll give up alcohol to you right now. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I got a wedding coming up. I have a theology on top. I got all the excuses. <laughs> I love IPA <clears throat> and whiskey. 
So I started, I'm like, all right, I'll do 40 days with you. We'll k- kick this start, you know, we'll, we'll do it good. We'll get this kick started and you keep going. And then as, <laughs> on March 28th, that was the day I gave up alcohol. And I haven't since. And it led to a season of the Nazarite vow for me. It led to minimalism and simplicity, a dramatic way of simplicity. It led to abundant generosity. It led to my wife and I selling our house and giving the money away. It led, uh, if you ask my wife, what has been the greatest impact on your marriage in the last 12 years? She said, the moment Darren gave up alcohol. Something started then that led to greater intimacy in our marriage, a greater intimacy with Darren as a father, a presence that I carried to my kids that I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I, I've learned over time. Now, now it started with this one thing, and I tell you that because I, I wasn't an alcoholic, I wasn't, I wasn't misusing alcohol, but it was this decision to give up this little desire for something bigger. I was invited. I wasn't, I'm not prescribing this is the outcome you're gonna have. The invitation that I said yes to that God gave me in a dream that took me 13 months to say yes to, by the way, led to this season of abundance. And I discovered that there are things in my life that I use to, that hinder the person God's called me to be. There's no sin attached, although I might call it sin now, but there are things in my life that are not necessarily neutral, but they're not necessarily sinful, that God, that is hindering me of being the person that God has designed and called me to be. So I realize that sometimes you can have micro decisions, micro habits that have macro abundant impact. Like if you struggle with the, the way you dress, maybe decide on wearing a uniform for a while. So people always, oh, you like black. No, I've chosen because I've struggled with defining myself by image, by what I look like, by trying to keep up with preachers and sneakers. Um, it's not happening. <laughs> Not, not trying to keep up with them. But this is a real thing that our culture needs and it needs people that say, no, that's not for me. I'm not gonna define myself by what I dress. Now that itself is defining yourself. So it's hypo- hypocritical, right? So even in that, so I'm not prescribing this, but I'm recognizing my own walk and my own struggle. It led to this year just, uh, after traveling all last year, every month I was at a different church in a different city preaching. I realized that actually um, that is not the journey that I wanna take as an apostolic leader who grows in influence because what, what happens to pastors is um, people will come and say, hey, you gotta build your platform. And I, I just can't imagine ever hearing Jesus say, I just gotta work on my platform right now. Like I got this little fluent influence, so I need to steward it. Every time he recognized it, he would preach like, oh, I am the bread, eat my body, drink my blood. And they're like, what? Like I'm out. He's like, and everyone leaves. There is this decision we need to make as people to reject the ways of the world. And for me, I gave up social media for this year um, because I started and I realized that it had a hold in my heart and my mind. And so it was this little tiny thing that started with alcohol, this baby thing that has led to this abundant journey of recognizing there are lots of little things in my life that prevent me from being the person I wanna be. It's individual, it's not the Nazarite vow, but maybe it's a new Nazarite vow. Because there are things in our lives that bring spiritual death. And God might be inviting you into a season of consecration. And for me, my personal renewal began with a decision to refrain from this desire to pursue the greatest desire. And I think some of you are being stirred now and you need to process this and maybe God is inviting you. I'm not prescribing this. I'm not, com- I'm not saying this is what you have to do. I think God is bringing about an invitation to something that's greater than you could ever imagine. Why? Why would somebody take on the Nazarite vow and what does this have anything to do with the present future church? Well, the Nazarites in the Old Testament tended to show up in Israel's darkest moments of moral decay and failure. When the moral, the culture of, uh, 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 the moral decay of culture was so bad, nobody knew what to do, all of a sudden a Nazarite would pop up as a prophetic symbol of covenantal faithfulness. This is why we're here. Samson pops up, Samuel, David takes on the Nazarite vow for a season, um, John the Baptist. There's moments throughout the history of Israel and into the New Testament where men and women choose to live a consecrated life as a prophetic symbol of what's possible, as a prophetic symbol to culture of covenantal faithfulness to God, as a prophetic symbol to the church that needs to wake up from its slumber. Why? Would somebody take on the Nazarite vow? Uh, I think it has something to do with this, I, this theme that comes from the, the whole of scripture. 
and that's this. God begins with individuals with an invitation into consecration. But what you see is every single time in the scripture there's consecration, it brings visitation. You see, renewal of society doesn't begin with a giant visitation of God's glory manifesting itself on earth. It begins with a few people in a small church in in the the least expected place saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, forgive me. It begins with repentance. It turns into a pursuit of holiness. You can trace this to the early church. You can trace this to the Moravian movement. You can trace this to the Methodist movement. You can trace this to the holiness movement, to the Pentecostal movement, to the Jesus movement, to the the Welsh revival. You can see it across the way that people are stirred. They recognize what's going on in culture. They recognize their own stuff. They repent. They pursue holiness. They cry out for God on behalf of the world. And God moves all over the Old Testament. Moses will say, consecrate yourselves. And they consecrate yourselves in God themselves. And God comes down on the mountain and brings the Torah. Uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, Solomon dedicates and consecrates the temple. And they are commanded with detailed instructions on how to perform uh, sacrificial rituals when he consecrates. But they can't because the presence of God visits the consecrated people. In the, Old Te- in the New Testament, there's this amazing story. And here's why I bring this all to you. It's when I discovered this. I have preached this sermon a hundred times about Acts 19. In Acts 19, there's this amazing story. What scholars believe, Acts 19 is a story of Paul ending up in Ephesus. In Ephesus, most scholars think was the most significant ministry in Paul's, of Paul's ministry for lots of reasons. He shows up after being in Corinth. He shows up to a house with 12 Christians. They're not filled with the Spirit. They get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then the movement grows. The movement grows to where they meet every day in the hall of Tyrannus, where he, he teaches the word of God every day. And people take note. It spreads throughout Asia Minor. And then it says in Acts chapter 19, um, in verse, one of these verses, 12, <laughs> verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, extraordinary miracles. This is, a, this is a word that is made up by Luke because it wasn't making sense. All of the other miracles were miracles and then all of a sudden, extraordinary miracles were all of a sudden, thank God it's not as hot. Aprons that had touched Paul were taken to sick people and the aprons and handkerchiefs that he touched cured sicknesses and, peop- and, and cast out demons. Is that crazy? That's extraordinary. And then the next thing is, uh, in the spiritual climate, all of a sudden, all these people recognize that Jesus is Lord, and so they can't do Jesus is Lord and my other gods. So they worshiped Artemis and all these other gods, and they're like, okay, I can't have like, books dedicated to Artemis and follow Jesus, so let's bring the books and the scrolls and the potions, and let's burn them openly and confess that Jesus is Lord publicly. And they do, and it's like $3 million is burned up of all, and people are like, wait, no, don't throw away the Artemis artifact, like I want that. And they're like, no, Jesus is Lord. And then the, the city riots, because the economy tilts in favor of Jesus and not the other idols. And that, that's, the, that's what happens in Ephesus. It's a revival in Ephesus. 200 years later, 90% of Ephesus is Christian, and it's the second largest city in the entire Roman Empire. This is significant. This is amazing. God shows up in Ephesus. God visits Ephesus. But check this out. Verse 18, before Paul arrives in Acts 19, In Acts 18, verse 18, it says this. Before he uh, he sailed, he had his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken. And then it says they arrived in Ephesus. Why did Paul cut his hair? He had just finished a Nazarite vow. He was in Corinth, a stronghold for sexuality and self-pleasure and pleasure and and temple prostitution and wealth and extravagance and a celebrity culture and a do-it-yourself culture and follow your heart culture and he chose to live a certain way as a model for Corinth and then he finishes his vow dedication to the Lord and he shows up to Ephesus and there's a visitation of the Lord. Why do we take on a Nazarite vow? Because perhaps God wants to visit us. Perhaps God wants to stir his church to bring his glory 
as a demonstration of his reality. And every time God moves throughout history, it's almost always first a pursuit of holiness within the church, not outside. We're not condemning. It's an invitation to recognize as Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips. It's here. You see, I think if God wants to transform a city, it's gonna begin with individuals experiencing transformation and renewal. If God wants to renew the city, he's gonna renew your heart first because what happens in you is what you build around you. What you build in your own life is what you build around your life. And perhaps God is calling us to give up the lesser desires for the greater desires. This is an invitation into holiness. It's an invitation to be a church of the future, the present future church, to live as a holy church because society needs a life modeling the way of Jesus more than ever before. And there's a connection between God's, uh, the church's pursuit of God's presence and holiness and revival in culture and society. I love what G.K. Chesterton says. He says, there is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. And, and when I think that, can I tell you what I personally think? As I'm having conversations with um, people uh, in, in the church world, publishers and churches of influence, you know, there's this discern, there's this thing where it's like, there's this industry of making money. There's this industry of church life that ha is like a machine in, Amer in the American church. And, and, I, and I hear in th what they're asking of leaders, and I hear what they're expecting of the church, and it feels so counter um, revival culture. It feels so counter of what Jesus would have. It's so, like Jesus, all, like Jesus didn't do large things famously as fast as possible. And that's what is expected of, of healthy churches today, of successful, of successful people. We wanna broadcast everything. He did a lot of things in private. He did a lot of things and told people, don't say anything. He, did a, he wasted a lot of time with 12 dudes, really 11 dudes that carried on the mission and not the crowds, not somebody following him around with the camera saying this is what it's gonna look like in the future. That's not the future. And the, I, think, I don't think when we look at the leaders of the future, they're gonna be concerned with how many followers they have on Instagram but we're obsessed. Like we, we make it our objective that to be a, a person of influence, you have to have X amount of followers. That is crazy to me, that that's what we're looking for. When the people of the future won't have those followers, they won't engage in that platform. They will most likely be people of substance who have committed themselves to discipleship, who live the way of Jesus in and out of season, who are doing things in secret because God is cultivating a heart that's full of power, not influence of media, power in relationship, power in demonstration. I'm just, I, I'm just, I feel like the church, it's like what, what we preached about or what Tyler preached about. We need to flip the tables over and define what reality is. And I feel like no one's been telling me, Darren, there are things you can, that you're doing in your life that aren't quote unquote sin, but they're hindering the life of God. Wake up. You're like, oh, that's cool, D. Uh, let's just go to Amazon Prime. Let's just do Netflix. Let's just change the channel. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, hey, yeah, I just left church. Let's go get some burritos. Like that's, that's the life. I just feel like at some point we have to make a decision. Will you become the kind of person that uh, when you walk into those heavenly courts, whatever it looks like, it will smell like burnt hair? Passion. So, in an age of complacency, in an age of compromise, will you become a person burning with passion and purity as the present future church? If you're interested in this journey that many of us have already committed to, I wanna invite you to consecration with the promise and hope of a visitation in your own life and as a community and in our city and in our nation. I believe God is looking for people who are hungry and God is looking for people who are holy. Where will we begin? Well, let me just put up three questions for you. Number one, if you were to examine your life, where is there compromise? Maybe take out your phone. Or if you have paper and pen, there's this thing that's really old and ancient. 
paper and pen, write this down. But if you don't, have a phone, pull out your phone, go to a note, go to Evernote, whatever it is you take. Text it to yourself like my wife. She just texts it to herself. Where's their compromise in your life? Where do you blur the lines? Where, if you were to just be honest with yourself and be like, yeah, this is an area of compromise. And for everyone, this is the thing. This is why it's, it's, it's different for everyone. There's, this is why the Holy Spirit needs to work with you right now. Like, yeah, for, for you, Netflix isn't the issue. For me, Netflix is the issue. For you, social media not, might not be an issue, but for me, it was an issue. For, for me, I was invited to give up alcohol, um, and, and I don't, I'm not prescribing that, but I think some of us, yeah, because you don't know moderation. You don't know my. We don't know moderation as the church. For some of you, it might be food. It might be time. It might be your commitment. I, I mean, I think, you know, I was talking to somebody recently um, who's a pastor, and he was telling me, like, man, you're so disciplined with your, your schedule and your time. Like, you're never late. I'm like, yeah, I've chosen not to be late. Now, it's really hard with kids and a wife who tends to be late, but if in my work life, I have done everything I can to be there on time. I believe, I grew up watching a pastors change their schedule all the time, and I do this, so I'm not excused from this, but I believe that one of the ways we can honor people is by showing up on time, actually saying yes, and showing up when we say yes, actually saying yes first, not maybe, or even better, no, and don't make excuses. I am doing the best that I can. So no, I'm not gonna meet with you. Thank you so much. But we have other pastors that will meet with you. Like, it's okay. Remember Bill said this a couple weeks ago and I asked him, hey, how, how can I live long in ministry? He said, disappoint people. So there you go. <laughs> what continues to distract, hinder you from being a person you wanna be? This is a, a really clever one. So if you want, I wanted to be a present loving father like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna do these, I'm gonna build a rock wall for my son and I'm gonna take him camping and we're gonna do these epic, I'm gonna teach him how to hit that ball, home run, you know, it's like you build this. What if the, the actual discipline was this thing of like, put, shut your phone off when you walk in the door? Don't have emails on your phone. Have a day a week where you don't rush off scheduling things with everyone else, but you're just, hey, Ezra, what do you wanna do today? You want to play spies? Okay, let's play spies. Tell me what that means. <laughs> all right, let's go. You want, and, and I'm not saying that all the time, but that's what I've learned is to be present to them. That's, and, but there's so many areas. So for me, it's like the person that you want to be, sometimes it's the simplest thing, like your phone gets in the way or, or your ideal. Last one is the question for the new Nazarites that I think God is stirring is, what brings spiritual death? And anything that get, uh, brings spiritual death, give it up as a sacrifice to the Lord, as a vow. And we could talk about spiritual death, like big things, like lust, pornography, addiction, alcohol, drugs, envy, gossip, gossip, gossip. Gossip is pornography in the church. Gossip is the pornography for the community of God. If you, here's one thing God's working on in me, not thinking thoughts that are dishonoring of others. I mean, I try not to speak dishonoring of anyone. Um, I'm just gonna confess this to the second service and we won't podcast this one, but I, I wanna tell you an honest confession real quick that happened this week. Uh, on Tuesday, I was running and I was training for the Long Beach Marathon with World Vision. Make sure you run with World Vision or support those that are. Um, and I was doing like my fastest time for this eight mile run. It was, I was just like, yeah, I'm booking it. And I get, you know, I got my music on. It's like, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was um, actually um, Kendrick Lamar. And, and it's like, nobody pray for me. It's been all day. I'm like, yeah, it has been all day for me. No, um, and I'm running and this car, almost every time in our new neighborhood, I get almost hit by a car. It's like, no joke. People don't know how to look at, so I'm judging. I'm like, dude, this city, I'm like cursing the city. I'm like, these, these people are self-focused on their phones. They don't know that there's pedestrians walking by. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be better than that. I'm gonna look, so I'm running, and then I hear God say, don't think dishonoring thoughts. Ah, oh, as I'm running, I'm, this is the confession. So this is how bad I am. There's a, a young man standing on the street, and there's a bus on my left and a, and a fence right here, and he's got this big bag on, and I'm running, and I like ha hit the fence in his bag. He doesn't move, and I like look back, and I'm just like, and it was, it was like a, oh, come on, man. Like, it wasn't like, I'm condemning you, and then I keep running. 
And the Lord says, you just dishonored my child. I hear this, I'm like, oh. And it's like Macklemore in my head. Like, uh, you know, like, it's like this song, like there's these moments. And I'm like, you gotta do it right now. I gotta, so God's like, turn around and go apologize. And I'm like a half mile away. I was gonna beat my time, I didn't. And I go back, I can't find him. And I'm like, I gotta find him. So I go and I'm looking. I'm like, he was trying to cross the street. And I go and there's a, there's a Taco Bell. And I'm like, oh, maybe. So I go to the Taco Bell, cross the streets, busy traffic. Now I'm the guy in the way and um, dodging cars. And I see him. And I said, I go up to him, sweaty, short shorts, tank top, sweat, hot. He, he is got his headphones on. And I go up to him, like dripping. And I said, hey, hey, can I have a second? And I'm like, hey, I have to apologize. I totally dishonored you and disrespected you when I threw my hands up. Will you forgive me? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, it was my fault. I should have got out of the way. And we, ch- we sat there and chatted for a few minutes. He was going to work. I learned about his story. His name was Elijah, oddly enough. I told him I was a pastor, and I, I asked if he would forgive me, and I didn't represent Jesus well, and then I took off running. And uh, so what are the things getting in the way that hinder you from being the kind of person God's called you to be? Well, throwing up your hands when you're running at people is one for me. What about you? What brings spiritual death? your negative thoughts of others, your judgment, your alcohol, your, your pride, your unrestricted access to your phone, your um, thoughtless consumerism. The other thing I'm just gonna confess for you guys because you're my favorite service is, you know, I realize that having been doing this journey with Jesus long enough that the way you become an older brother is thinking that you can do someone's life better than them. Like, if I could just do your life, you would be so much better. Wow, pride in the flesh, Pastor Darren. That's, and the Lord's just showing me, like, I, I, you love people, and, um, and, and this is how you love people. You, you live with them without judgment, even when they're different. And so the Lord's been teaching me to celebrate differences rather than judging the difference. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.